Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club Humanities Forum program. My name is Ladaris Cordell, Commonwealth Club board member and your moderator. As the club continues to host virtual events, we are grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. We hope you will also consider making a donation online or text donate to 415-329-4231. The club also thanks the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. Marcus Books in Oakland for being our bookstore partner and George Hammond for helping to organize today's event. Now it is my pleasure to welcome Michelle Duster, author of Ida B, The Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. Michelle is the great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells and has written, edited, or contributed to 16 books for both adults and children. As an advocate to highlight women and African-Americans, Michelle has worked on several public history projects to rename streets, monuments, and historical markers in the United States. She has received several awards, including the 2019 Multi-Generational Activist Award from the Illinois Human Rights Commission and the 2019 Martin Luther King Jr. Social Justice Award from Dartmouth College. Michelle. Welcome. Let me start off with a couple of quotes from the book. Um, so, Michelle, um, well, first, just thank you for being here. And how are you through all this pandemic? <laughs> I'm good, Ladoris, and thank you so much to the Commonwealth Club for having me. This is such an honor. How are you faring through all of this? I'm good. Uh, I'm located in Chicago, and we just had a nice big snowstorm. So oh, goodness. <laughs> Well, this is this is the perfect this is the perfect time to have a conversation. You snowed in. Uh, what better? Yeah. So, um, let me first congratulations on the book, and, and let's start off with with a, a couple of quotes from the book. Here's the first quote: "I believe she is considered by all of the intelligence officers as one of the most dangerous Negro agitators." And here's the second quote: "Brave woman, you have done your people and mine a service." which can neither be weighed nor measured. So these were descriptions of Ida B. Wells Barnett, your great grandmother. So the first description from her FBI file and her second description from Frederick, Frederick Douglass. So Michelle, which was she, a dangerous agitator or a brave woman? I actually think my great grandmother Ida B. Wells was both. <laughs> Um, and it just obviously depended on what perspective people were coming from. And one of my goals in Ida B. the Queen was to show how the work that she did, which was um, uncovering the atrocities regarding lynching, um, it challenged the status quo and it countered the narratives of the time about what was going on regarding lynching and the Black community. So from the perspective of the government, she was an agitator. Um, but she also was a brave woman in order to do that. So she she was both. But well, but she agitated for um, freedom and equality, right? I mean, she wasn't right. agitating for you know blowing up anything at all, right? Right. But she was considered dangerous Negro agitator <laughs> um, because 
she was influencing people in the black community to stand up for themselves. And so when you have a system that uh, has a vested interest in oppressing people and exploiting people and humiliating people, and then when you have somebody that's um, agitating to help have people stand up for themselves and not accept second-class citizenship um, and to uh, boycott and uh, migrate and all of these things that are part of black resistance, then she was considered a major annoyance who needed to be silenced. Yeah, that's dangerous when you, when you put it that way, absolutely, given you know the system in which she was operating. Um, was it hard to get her FBI files? It wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. I mean, at this point, you know, so many things are available digitally, so I was able to access them online. Thank God, you know, this, having to go physically to Washington would have been very difficult right. during a pandemic. <laughs> right. So, Michelle, I found your book to be both informative and unusual and that it's not just your standard biography with a storyline that starts with Ida B.'s birth, 1862, in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and ends with her death in 1931. Instead, you take the reader on a tour of her amazing life by showing how she influenced your life and your voice as an author, how she used her own voice for the protection and advancement of justice and equality, and how her work continues to impact activism long after her passing. So, so let's start with you. Uh, in the book, you write about how much you and your grandmother are alike um, and not alike. So in what ways are you two alike and not alike? Right. Well, Ida B. Wells is my great-grandmother. She was my grandmother's mother. And I never got a chance to meet her because she died 32 years before I was born. Um, so I learned about her from my, great, from my grandmother, who I spent a lot of time with. Uh, and through research, because, and luckily, Ida B. Wells, my great-grandmother, was a writer. <laughs> um, so that made it a little easier than maybe for some people who are researching their family to access information about her. She left a trove of, um, of writings and publications, and she also wrote a, um, she kept a journal. And so that gave me insight into some of her inner thoughts that would never have been available in her public writings because she was a journalist. Um, so in my search, I found that we, I did have some similarities to her, which were interesting considering I, I, did, I never met her. So you're similar in that you're both writers. I mean, this is apparently your calling as well. Are there other writers in your family or is it just kind of Ida B to you? Um, it's pretty much Ida B and uh, I have other family members who do some writing for their professions. Um, and then I have one other cousin who's interested in writing who's a next generation after me. So for the most part, I'm the only one. Wow. <laughs> and there are a total of, there were a total of 20 great grandchildren. Um, so I'm, wow. I, I stand out compared to my cousins when it comes wow. to my interest. Wow. Can you describe her, like, was she a tall person, short, and just kind of give us a, and we've seen the photographs on the headshots and everything, and I've seen a few of her standing there, but can you give us a little bit more, just some, you know, quick details about her? Right, well, my great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, was actually quite petite, <laughs> um, and I, I 
uh, included that information in Ida Be the Queen when I described her uh, encounter in the train when she was thrown off the train. Um, yeah, we're going to get to that one. Yes. Right. But I mean, it's important to note that she was a, a, a physically um, small person. <laughs> she was around five feet tall. Really? And yes, um, she was, yeah, she was around five feet tall. And especially when she was younger, she was quite petite. I don't know what, how much she weighed, but I'm guessing maybe 120 pounds or something. So she was a tiny woman in stature, um, which makes it even more significant as far as how feisty she was. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, there are already several biographies about your great grandmother and even her, her own autobiography. So what is different about Ida B. the Queen? I mean, you've already published two books about her. Why this one? What makes this book different? There's several things about Ida B. the Queen that make it different from the other books about her. Um, one is I told a little bit of information about my own journey um, because I've been talking about Ida for a while and I do uh, get questions about what was it like to grow up as a great granddaughter of Ida B. Wool. So I thought I would answer that and share that information. Um, so to give a peek into the experience of growing up with an historic figure as an ancestor. And I also wanted to help people understand how my great grandmother's life fits into the 400 year experience of African-Americans in this country. She lived during a specific time period, but uh, there were a lot of things that happened before her and then after her, and it's all connected. And I think it helps people understand how the present is impacted by the past. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about you? You said that you write in the book about your, your journey and all of this. Maybe just give us a few highlights. About my life, LaDoris? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, which at the time, and still now actually, is predominantly Black neighborhood. It, it uh, wasn't when I first moved in, but we know the story of uh, urban America when it came to um, people leaving the city. Um, so I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, went to predominantly uh, black schools until I was a little older um, where I went to uh, integrated schools and went to Dartmouth College. So I mean, on my journey, I was very interested in how African-Americans were portrayed in the media specifically. It bothered me that I didn't see as many people who looked like me or lived like I did um, on television, and and I really it really struck me when I got to college how many misconceptions people had about people who grew up on the south side of Chicago, and it, it helped me understand the power of the media and images. Got it. So this book, talking of images, is loaded with images. You've got family photographs, newspaper clippings. Um, you've got this wonderful and unique color portraits of civil rights pioneers, past and present. Who was the artist and how did you decide to include the artwork? Um, the artist is Monica, I'm gonna spell her last name so people wanna look her up. It's A-H-A-N-O-N-U. Um, she's on Instagram and in a lot of social media. So um, she is an amazing artist. Um, she has a very specific style, and it seemed appropriate for, for this type of book to 
bring to life a lot of these historical figures who many people are familiar with their names and they've seen their images, um, you know, very common images of them, but to, to show them in a different way, um, you know, just kind of add it to how this book could be framed in a different way as far as telling our history. Do you have the book in front of you there? Is there anything maybe you might be able to put up and just give an idea? Because I, I found that the artwork just wonderful and different, as you said. It's, so here we go. And who, who are we looking at here? Um, this is William Monroe Trotter, Medgar Evers. Yeah, we can see. That's great. This is Margaret Marshall. Right. Wow. Can you pronounce the artist's last name for us? Uh, or not? Uh, uh, no, no, no. And spell it one more time for us, because I think people are going to want to look up. A-H-A-N-O-N-U. All right, thank you. You know, I, I am still trying to wrap my head around how a woman, five feet tall, born into slavery, the eldest of eight children, becomes the head of the household at the age of 16, goes to college, had audiences with presidents, lived with constant FBI surveillance, married, had three children, was Chicago's first female probation officer, was a school teacher, owned a newspaper, and in a white male dominated profession. And she wrote an autobiography. She became one of this country's greatest investigative journalists. I mean, it's exhausting just reciting all of these accomplishments. So where did Ida B. Wells Barnett get her strength from? I mean, did she have a mentor, anybody to guide her? Later in her life, I mean, Frederick Douglass was a big influence on her. Um, she met him when she was in her mid-20s. And he, he saw talent in her and he definitely encouraged her. And he, he actually uh, provided some opportunities for her. Um, so he was a big influence on her life. He actually introduced her to her husband, my great grandfather. Um, so what a big influence that, that he was. Um, she also had a lot of colleagues. She worked with William Monroe Trotter. Um, she worked with Mary Church Terrell, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Marcus Garvey. She and Madam C.J. Walker had um, interaction. I mean, it's almost the who's who of you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it sounds um, amazing that all of these people were sort of working together, but it makes sense because they all were working for the same goal of um, full citizenship for African-Americans. They had conferences and conventions during that time, so they did interact with each other quite a bit. So you mentioned mostly men who were people with whom she interacted, and, and that's because I mean, men were the ones who put themselves in the positions of leadership, but there were women. Um, in addition to Ida, where can you, and you may have mentioned someone, I'm sorry if I didn't catch it, but um, can you remember any other women that were either her colleagues or help guide her? I mean, in her autobiography, when I was doing my research for Ida B. Queen, she mentions uh, Mary Church Terrell. They, they were both co-founders of the NAACP. They were both co-founders of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. Um, she also interacted with Mary McLeod Bethune. And then she had quite actually a friendship with Susan B. Anthony. Um, and then in Chicago, she worked with Jane Addams. So she did interact with women. Um, it, it was 
in a slightly different way. Um, but, right. you know, because there was the fight for women's rights and then there was a fight for uh, racial equality. Right, right. So, you know, I have an interest in things legal. So when you described Ida B's court battles, I was just intrigued. Um, so at the age of 22, she decides to take on the powerful Chesapeake, Ohio and Southwestern Railroad. So can you give us just the backstory? I think you started to tell us a little bit. What's the backstory that led up to her deciding that she was gonna sue the railroad? Right, Lodoris. Well, my great grandmother, Ida B. Wells, um, she was teaching in Memphis and teaching it, well, she was living in Memphis and she was teaching in Woodstock, um, Tennessee, which is about 14 miles away. And so she had to commute from uh, where she lived to where she worked. So she had to take the train. And in 1881, Tennessee passed laws segregating um, the public transportation. And my great grandmother was, had to still get to work. So she just ignored the law and continued riding the way she had before, which was on the ladies' car since she was a lady. And eventually in 1883, they asked her to move from the ladies' car to go to the colored car, and she refused and was um, thrown off the train in a fairly, fairly violent way. And she was humiliated. Well, and when you say violent way, I mean, she was literally- Well, like sure, three men, there were three men who, uh, the train conductor and two of the baggage men came and um, removed her physically. And she actually bit <laughs> uh, one of the men because she was fighting. And one of the things that she wrote about in her uh, journal that was really heart-wrenching was how she, um, she felt that as a woman, the other people on the train cheered when she was uh, removed from the train. You know, so so that sense of she doesn't belong just because she's African American, um, and and to add insult to injury, one of the things she mentioned is how black women who were nursing white children were welcome on the train. So so she felt as a professional, educated woman to be treated with that level of disrespect. And with the idea that the cars were supposedly separate but equal, but they were not uh, equal in any way. And that's why she sued the railroad. So when you said they weren't equal, can you just, and I think you'd give a little description of what the colored cars, you know, what, they, what the conditions were like. Right, the, the cars that were designated for colored, uh, first of all, were there were men and women, so it wasn't just a ladies' car. Second of all, white men could come and go as they pleased, and a lot of them she she described um, were drunk. Um, people also smoked in the uh, colored car, and it was near the front of the train. So, if, you know, when you see these movies of the old uh, trains where they had the smoke coming out of the front. So the smoke from the actual train would enter through the windows. So she found that to be intolerable. And, um, and so that, and, and absolutely unequal. And so she sued on that basis. Wow. So at this time, she's 22 years old. And I had mentioned earlier that at the age of 16, she's the oldest of eight. She ends up having to take care of everybody. And if you could just briefly tell us what happened to the parents, her parents. Right, well, in 1878, 
Um, both of Ida's parents, my great-great-grandparents, um, died from a yellow fever epidemic within one day of each other. And at that time, Ida B. Wells was 16 years old. And she ultimately ended up taking care of her five remaining siblings because one of her siblings died along with her parents and another had died earlier. Um, so there were six of them remaining. And at the age of 16, despite the fact that uh, several of her father's friends volunteered to take some of the children and take care of them, but they were gonna leave Ida on her own, she defied all of them and insisted that she could take care of the children on her own. It's, it's just amazing. And, and I, you write in the book how she did it for a couple of years till she was you know, near burnout, but, but amazing. So let's get back to the lawsuit. So um, I just found this such a great story. So after her, she hires this lawyer who is black and he ends up betraying her. He gets bought off by the railroad. So she turns and hires another lawyer who is white. And you said his name is James Greer. So Christmas Eve, this is now 1884, she wins. And she gets, you wrote $500 in damages. And you point out that that sum back then was equal to a year's of our teacher's salary. So today it'd be closer to like $20,000. But the victory was short-lived. So what happened? Well, the, the railroad, the Chesapeake, Ohio and Southwestern Railroad, obviously made a decision that they could not let a black woman win a lawsuit against them because it would set a precedent for other people to sue them. So they were gonna fight tooth and nail against this and they appealed the case all the way up to the uh, Tennessee Supreme Court. And so in 1887, which was um, three years later, she, uh, the, the um, case was overturned, the verdict was overturned and, um, and so she was never awarded the money. And in fact, she had to pay uh, court costs, which added up to $200. So that's almost, you know what, five months <laughs> uh, salary. So it was a double loss for her. Well, a triple loss because it, it really um, disin disillusioned her when it came to how uh, African-Americans could have justice in the court system. I tell you, I, 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 that story enrages me, um, and it also just brings me, gets me thinking about how our legal system was used so much to oppress um, people um, of color, those who have very little, and yet the system has been used uh, to actually give us the rights that we, you know, are entitled to. It's a bit of kind of a schizophrenic thing with our legal system. So uh, apparently, uh, you write that Ida took this loss really, really hard. And on page 43 in your book, you include a passage from her journal about her courtroom experience. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a wonderful passage. And I wonder if you maybe would read the last maybe nine lines of it. So we get a sense about how she wrote about it, how she felt. Right. So in Ida Be the Queen, um, my great-grandmother wrote, it is... If it were possible, would gather my race in my arms and fly far away with them. Oh God, is there no redress, no peace, no justice in this land for us? Thou hast always fought the battles of the weak and oppressed. Come to my aid at this moment and teach me what to do, for I am sorely, bitterly disappointed. Show us the way 
even as thou led the children of Israel out of bondage into the promised land. Wow. Wow. And I wanted to include some of my uh, great grandmother's original writings in Ida B. the Queen so people could hear her voice and also get insight into her emotional state. Um, I, I thought it was important for people to see the full picture of who she was and not just all laundry lists of her accomplishments, but that she was disappointed, that she was disillusioned, that she was hurt and still had to uh, draw on some kind of strength. And what I noticed was that she was very, she drew on her faith, her religious faith. Wow. Uh, and and I, as I sit here, I still don't understand how someone whose parents die and a brother dies when she's 16, steps in, takes charge of the family, and then has this profession. She's a teacher. She's 22, and she's doing all of that, and she files a lawsuit, wins, loses, and has to pay out of her own. I, it's just, I mean, it's an incredible story. And that alone uh, should give people reason to, to go get this book and read this book. It's just, it's just amazing. So let's talk about journals and diaries. Um, uh, where do you have her? I, I don't know whether to call it a diary or journal and what's the difference of them. So you tell me what word to use, but where, where is hers now? Or are hers? Um, well, it's at my great, my grandmother uh, donated all of Ida's papers and works to the University of Chicago um, archives. But it's also been um, published by Miriam DeCosta Willis, who, um, who adds a lot because um, she gives background information about what Ida was talking about. But I personally, before uh, Miriam um, published her book, I, I have a copy of Ida's uh, um, diary. So it's interesting for me to see her handwriting. And one of the things I wanna mention when I was looking through her diary is that she wrote all in the margins, like she would, she would write like a normal paragraph and then she would write like going up along the side of the margins and then she would write things in between the lines. <laughs> it was very interesting to see the original um, of the diary. So how, how long is this diary? How many pages are we talking about? It's a little over a hundred pages or so. Yeah. And, and, and when did she keep it? Like, do you know from what age she started? And then yeah, she when she ended? From 1885 to 1887, so about two years. And, and, and then she stopped? Did she no longer kept a journal after that? Well, that's the only one that we have. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, she, um, there were a couple of incidents that my grandmother told me about where there were mysterious fires, and I always wondered what that was about. Um, so it's possible that she had some other journals that just didn't survive. Hmm. Um, do, do you keep a, a journal or a diary? I actually do, and I started when I was so young. I think I was in third grade. Really? Um, yeah, with one of those little diaries that has the key. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, and did you keep? Do you keep a journal? Do you keep a diary? I still do. I. I it's um, soothing for me to kind of collect my thoughts about things. Um, so it's a way for me to process what my life is. 
Do you think that, that the diary writing is a lost art or do you see it coming back? I think, well, based on what I see in stores where there are journals um, galore, I, it, people must be writing, um, but you know, that's such a private thing. I, it's, it's hard to know exactly how many people are engaging in it, but people must be doing it because it's, it's um, you know, they're beautiful journals that you, when you go to the actual physical store, <laughs> you can see. And so I just want to talk a little bit more about just the, the journals. Um, so what, what do you say to, I don't know, to, to young people or even older people? I mean, do you encourage people to do it? And, you know, why should we do it? I think it's important for people to have a space where they have time to, with themselves to document what they're feeling, what they're going through, what their experiences are. Um, one of the things that my great grandmother did in her journal, which was very interesting to me, was um, almost write like uh, critiques of plays. She went to the theater quite often and she would write her thoughts about the play or uh, about books that she read. Um, so it was a way for her to process what she was experiencing. Um, and for me to read it, it gives me a sense of what she was at, what her uh, passions were and what her social life was like and the kind of things that she did in her free time and how she reacted to them. Wow. Um, I encourage people who are listening to, you know, use the chat room. In fact, we have a question that just came in. I'd like to put to you. It says, you mentioned Madam C.J. Walker as a woman that your great-grandmother knew. Can you talk anything more about their relationship? Right, well, Madam C.J. Walker, as we know, <laughs> was an entrepreneur um, who uh, gained her, her um, acumen in hair care. And so she and my great-grandmother had slightly different paths, but where they came together was within um, the fight for justice. Madam C.J. Walker was a philanthropist and so she supported financially um, some of the initiatives that my great-grandmother was involved in. And their, their lives converged when, after World War I when there was an effort to have a peace conference and they were both selected as delegates to go to the peace conference to um, talk, about, talk with the, uh, on a world stage about how we could um, resolve you know, what happened during World War I. And they were both denied passports, which is one of the passages that I included in um, Ida Be the Queen, the FBI assessment of why she should be denied her passport. <laughs> Crazy. Wow. Um, you write on page seven in your book, and I'm taking a quote here. As a Black woman, she had to fight two battles, racism and sexism, and she did so tirelessly. Okay, so one such battle um, involved the struggle to be included in the suffrage movement, the right to get women the right to vote. Uh, and the leaders of the suffrage movement were white women. The story of how she outsmarted them at the National March for Suffrage is it's such a good story. Can you briefly tell us what she did? Right, well, my great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, was involved in political organizations in Illinois, and she founded the Alpha Suffrage Club in 1913. And so she was selected 
by the club to represent them at the parade in Washington, D.C. So she traveled there with the Illinois delegation. Once there, the Black women were asked to march in the back of the parade. And ultimately, my great-grandmother inserted herself front and center of the Illinois delegation during the march. Um, <laughs> when the march started, they couldn't find her. And she walked alongside the parade route and jumped out of the crowd and inserted herself front and center with the Illinois delegation. All, all five feet of her, right? All five feet of her. <laughs> That's just, that's awesome, just awesome. Um, we have a, another question from those who are um, attending. Is there a play or a book that your great-grandmother liked in particular? Wow, well, she mentioned in her autobiography that uh, she read a lot of the classics, what are considered classics for us right now. I mean, Charles Dickens and um, Louise May Alcott. Uh, so she, she mentioned actually more uh, writers than actual than the actual names of books. Mm -hmm. but those are some of the ones that she read, and she read the Bible. She mentioned how she read the Bible multiple times, and when they were growing up, that was the only book they could read on on Sundays. Wow, I, I love the story about how that Ida B stood up to the Secret Service over of all things buttons, little buttons. <laughs> uh, that read, and they, on the button says, In Memoriam, Martyred Negro Soldiers, December 11th, 1917. So without talking about the fascinating and the heartbreaking backstory about the buttons, you describe that in the book, and I encourage everybody to read about it. I mean, it's really remarkable. What can you tell us generally about her interaction with Secret Service agents who demanded that she stop her subversive distribution of these buttons. I'm sorry. I mean, that just makes me laugh every time. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell us about it. That, like you said, there were buttons that, uh, that she was distributing um, in honor of soldiers who were killed at Camp Logan in, in Houston. And she was so outraged that the United States government would kill its own soldiers. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, why don't you give us a little more backstory on that? Well, there was a Camp Logan outside of Houston um, where people, where black soldiers were being um, trained to go overseas and fight for freedom and democracy, wearing the United States uniform. But they were harassed and humiliated when they were in Houston and to the point where they decided they, they had to defend themselves. And as a result of them defending themselves, they were court-martialed and um, hanged. And so my great-grandmother thought that was an absolute outrage and people needed to, the, the soldiers needed to be uh, memorialized and the government needed to be criticized. So she, is, is, did she come up with the idea for the buttons? Well, yes. I mean, in, in her autobiography, she is very clear that she and Ferdinand, my, my great-grandfather, her husband, both felt that these people, the, the soldiers absolutely needed to be memorialized. And they at first attempted to have a memorial service um, at churches and they called church leaders to uh, find a space and nobody was willing to do that. So then she decided she'll just pass the buttons out um, so that at least people know about what happened and she could recoup some of the cost of printing the buttons. 
Wow. So secret service agents show up at her front door, right? And tell us about her interaction with them, how she dealt with these people when they showed up. Right. Well, they showed up at the Negro Fellowship League, which is the rooming house and uh, uh, location where she gave people job training. Um, so it was at her work where they showed up. And um, they basically confronted her and asked her, what about these buttons? Can we see these buttons? And she gladly handed it to them. And they told her that she's criticizing the government and she'll be charged with treason. And, and so she was like, well, go ahead. I dare you. Uh, and she famously made a statement uh, about how she'd rather go down in history as the lone Negro who had enough um, courage to speak up against the government than to keep her mouth shut. So she made it clear to them, like, I dare you to arrest me. I'll proudly go to jail because I believe in this so much that it is worth, it is worth being in prison for. And, they, and the way she describes it in her book, they were so stunned that she, that she was not intimidated by them. And she, at this point, she's in her late 50s. So they, they looked at her and like, okay, this woman, we'll, maybe we'll just leave her alone. Because <laughs> uh, she says that they never bothered her again. All right, they backed off. Amazing, amazing. But they did go to the printer of the buttons and make sure that he didn't make any more buttons. Got it. So they shut it down going through the back door, basically. Right. Got it. Um, Ida B. was very particular about her appearance and she was concerned that her reputation never be tarnished. Why was she so concerned about what others might think or say about her? One of the things I really wanted to uh, help people understand through uh, the book Ida B. the Queen is the extreme level of danger that Black women in particular um, experienced because you have to remember she's living through a time where people are being lynched, uh, mostly Black people and mo there were mostly men but still there were women who were lynched. Um, so there was this, this social atmosphere that your life could be taken at any time. And women, regardless of race, were put on a different, uh, had different expectations put on them of being pure and um, genteel and ladylike. Um, and so in order for her to feel that she could gain respect, she had to be extremely vigilant in how she looked. And <clears throat> so, and she was so vigilant about it that she confronted a minister who she heard was disparaging her indirectly um, and, and made sure that he apologized not only to her face, but to the public about what uh, he had implied about her because she could be in great danger um, if, if people thought that she was not you know, upstanding citizen. In addition, she was a teacher and so for her profession, she had to have a certain look. Wow. You know, it was her work as an investigative journalist that, who reported on the horrors of lynching that really put Ida B. on the map. And you write in your book, and I quote, she became a pioneer in what we think of now as investigative journalism, interviewing people associated with lynchings in any capacity and attempting to secure justice for victims even when police seemed disinterested in their cases. 
she wouldn't rest until the truths were made public. So there was an event that triggered her crusade to publicize the lynchings of Black people, something that shook her to the core. What was that event? Right, in 1892, uh, three of my great-grandmother's friends were were lynched. And they were proprietors, uh, businessmen who owned a grocery store. And that is what turned my great-grandmother's sensibility into this lynching is not about uh, punishment for a crime. The narrative at the time was that Black men were violating white women. And she knew that her friends were not guilty at all of any crime. And she writes in her uh, autobiography how she realized that lynching was being used as a tool, domestic terrorism, to terrorize the Black community and and to uphold a racial hierarchy. Um, and, and, And it was a way to get rid of the leaders in the, in the black community. Um, so she put two and two together and, and decided she wanted the whole world to know what was really going on because unfortunately some people were believing the actual false narratives. And she didn't just write about the lynchings. I mean, she raised public awareness by traveling um, across the country. She went to England. She gave speeches about them. And even when she faced threats of violence, um, do you know how those threats affected her? And did she have did she have anyone to confide in when things got terrifying for her? That is actually unclear to me um, because she. I read through her autobiography. Um, and she doesn't really talk that much about who were her confidants um, or, or, or how she continued to go forward. I can surmise that a lot of it was her faith, um, but she was alone. I mean, there were, there were um, people who were telling her to not do this, to stop doing this, because, they, because she was stirring up trouble. Um, and so then she continued to do it anyway. So some people, even though she was working on behalf of the black community, some people really wanted her to be stay silent and just, you know, just like lay low, we'll just deal with this. But she kept on going. Um, so she was just determined. And I look at it as the same way that how some people today, uh, when something personal happens, and Sabrina Fulton is an example. Trayvon Martin's mother. When something personal happens and you know what the, what the situation is and you cannot get justice through the courts, there's a fire that, is, uh, that comes up with you and you're like, I'm going to change this some kind of way. Um, and I think that's what happened with my great grandmother. She, it was personal to her and she wanted vengeance. <laughs> wow. So given how busy she was, I mean, she traveled, she did her writing, newspaper work, investigative work, networking. She married Ferdinand Barnett. So can you talk about what their relationship was like? And also, who who was Ferdinand Barnett? What what kind of a person was he? Well, Ladoris, well, Ferdinand Barnett was my great, great. He was my great grandfather. Um, so I come from both of these people, and <laughs> he was a widower when um, Ida met him 
he was 10 years older than her and he was an established attorney. And he also uh, owned a newspaper, the conservatory newspaper. He was also a civil rights activist in his own way. And so they were a really good match because his personality was more laid back and quiet and unassuming. And she was fiery and uh, confrontational. And so they really kind of complemented each other. So she doesn't marry though till, uh, uh, maybe if you can remember, how old was she when she married Mr. Barnett? Uh, she was 33 years old, which is okay. considered really ancient for somebody who was born in 1862. Right. So, and then she, and she doesn't have any children up until then. So she's now in her thirties. And during the time she was married to him, she had three children, right? She had four children. She had four children. So is she, yes. does she have children when she's in her forties or how? Yes. My grandmother is, is uh, Ida's youngest daughter and she, my, my grandmother was born when Ida was 42. And that's highly unusual back in the day, right? I mean, women were getting that's married. unusual today. True. <laughs> um, for women to have children in their 40s. Yeah. So she was an older mother. Um, and, and then you have to remember my great-grandfather was 10 years older than Ida. So he was 52 when my grandmother was born. So. How did all that work? I mean, how was the household like? She's doing all this stuff. He's a lawyer and he's 10 years older and she's having kids and now she's in her 40s. So how did raising children work in that household? Well, the good thing about the time that they lived was that they didn't really have to commute <laughs> for their jobs. Um, so, I mean, the, the, for instance, the Negro Fellowship League was almost around the corner from where my great-grandparents lived. So that saved a lot of time. Um, my grandmother, um, you know, they went to school uh, in the neighborhood. I mean, I am very familiar with the neighborhood that they grew up in, and everything was in walking distance. Um, and there was a sense of community um, among the people who lived in the neighborhood. So there was a lot of help. Interesting. I just don't see how, how it got done, but she did it. She did it. Um, so there are a couple of questions that are coming in from, from the folks who are attending the program here. And one is that when you looked at uh, your great-grandmother's diaries, was there anything in there that, that surprised you, that shocked you in any way when you were going through them? When I was uh, doing research for Ida B. the Queen, I did uh, go through my great-grandmother's diary and there wasn't anything so much that shocked me as much as made me laugh. Um, I mean, some of her descriptions of the people that she interacted with were hilarious to me. Um, um, she really, I mean, these were her inner thoughts. And, um, and there were some people she really didn't care for. And the way she would describe them for herself was simply funny to me. It's like, can I'm you give an example? Remember, trying to remember um I mean she was she would just call people things like oh they had a bird you know bird face or <laughs> um just the way they she would describe their physical appearance was funny did she ever intend for the you think her journals to be published or do you think these were her mind was like these are 
totally private and they go with me. When I die, that's it. Well, I, I mean, she kept the journal from 1885 to 1887 and there was nothing written after that. And um, so part of me thinks she was intentional about keeping that journal available because she had plenty of time to destroy it between 1887 and 1931. Um, so I, wow. I get the impression that she was okay with people having access to it. Got it. Is there anything, any memories that your grandmother has conveyed to you about Ida B? Is there anything that you can tell us that she specifically remembers? The way my grandmother talked about her mother was more in terms of her actual work. I mean, we grew up knowing that she was a journalist and a suffragist, a civil rights icon. She was one of the founders of the NAACP. Um, and my grandmother would tell us that uh, near about her characteristics that, you know, your, your, your grandmother, your great grandmother uh, was always willing to fight for what she believed in. And um, you need to speak up for yourself. <laughs> uh, so it was more told in the, in the frame of values and how you need to, um, we, uh, education was strongly um, emphasized in our family of something that nobody could take away from you. Got it, got it. Um, here's a, a comment and a, and a question from someone. Uh, many white people say they know black history because they know Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and even the name Ida B. Wells. What lesson applies to aspiring journalists today that they can learn from your great-grandmother? One of the things about my great-grandmother that is inspiring to me is how business savvy she was. I mean, in addition to being a journalist, she insisted on being a co-owner of a newspaper, which gave her control. And I think that is important when it comes to telling our stories in a lot of situations, having ownership gives an opportunity to shape the information that um, you feel is important to be published. So if you own the publishing outlet, then you have more control over those type of messages and that kind of information. So. Um, that has been something as a guiding uh, force for me when it comes to having input into how uh, African-American stories are told. I want to go back to your great-grandfather for a moment. Um, I'm intrigued by him because he's married to this woman who is a force of nature. And she's out there getting all of this attention. And, and you know, in some relationships, and maybe most, you know, men are going to be threatened by that, they're not gonna like that, and it's just somehow relationships don't work. So what was it about him? I mean, he apparently was not threatened by the fact that she was out there doing all of this stuff. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and, and how that relationship was able to work? I mean, based on the research that I did um, and uh, you know, talking with my grandmother about her father, he, he, want, he was attracted to her strength, and um, that's what he loved about her. He encouraged her to speak up and to fight 
um, there were moments where, just say for instance, he would read about something in the newspaper. Um, there were cases that, that happened um, with individuals who were falsely accused of crimes and imprisoned. And my great, my great grandfather would read about the case in the newspaper and he would tell his wife, my grand grandmother, oh, did you hear about this? And she would say, oh, that's an outrage. And he'd say, well, you should do something about that. <laughs> and, and he encouraged her to um, go and, and speak up and, and fight for this person's uh, right. And since he was an attorney, he uh, was behind the scenes and would provide the documentation and arguments and the briefs and all of this for her to go be the, the, the public person. Um, in testifying in front of the governor, for instance, um, there were several occasions when that was the dynamic between the two of them. Well, I mean, it just it's just amazing. I mean, they were a real team. Um, and I just think that's it's, yeah. it's just highly unusual to, to see that kind of a thing happening. Um, 2020, uh, I think it was the worst year ever. Uh, we had pandemic, we had the rise of racism, anti-Semitism, um, the devastated economy, the assault on democracy. All of that being said, one good thing that came out of 2020, one of the good things, or a few, was the posthumous Pulitzer Prize special citation bestowed upon your great-grandmother, almost 90 years after her death. So I think, you know, better late than never, right? So talk to us about that experience and what that has meant to your family, to you and to your family. Right, well, I mean, for my great-grandmother, I'd be wrong to receive recognition in today's world for what she contributed to journalism. Um, for me, it showed how timeless her work is and, and how important of a documentation it is of our country's history, because it really is a firsthand chronicle of what was going on during that time when it came to the brutal uh, practice of lynching. Her writing was extremely descriptive. And for people to be able to read it today uh, puts it into perspective exactly how dangerous and violent um, and lawless, uh, the situation was for African Americans during, living during that time. So, what what books do you have in you now? What what do we have to look forward to? I, I'm working on a couple of children's books. Tell. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, to to still African American history, um, to introduce our rich history to a really little kids. Um, so they can see themselves in, in these stories. Are they are going to be about your great-grandmother or some other subject? One of them is about her, and um, the two others will include many other um, African-American trailblazers. Um, so it's a, it'll be a well-rounded representation of our rich history. So I want to go back to this book, the one uh, Ida B. the Queen. Um, can you tell me, like, oh, before I ask this question, we have another question coming in. Um, a note that um, Woodrow Wilson High School in Portland uh, is being renamed for Ida B. Wells. Talk to us about that. I had no idea. <clears throat> yes. Um, I mean, our family was informed about that. I think that is such poetic justice. <laughs> Um, since my great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, actually had more than one encounter 
with uh, Woodrow Wilson. She actually visited him in the White House in 1913 um, to she and uh, William Monroe Trotter uh, made the request that he stops segregating the federal government. Um, so for a school that's named after him to be changed to her name <laughs> is uh, just really, I think a wonderful thing. Yeah, so just talk to people a little bit more about Woodrow Wilson. He was one of the most racist presidents we've ever had. Um, uh, so talk a little bit more about him and his attitude about segregation, about black people in general. Well, the, the situation with the, um, the soldiers in, 1913, in 1917 happened under Woodrow Wilson's uh, you know, term. So to me, that says a lot that, that these soldiers uh, that, rep that were um, to fight for freedom and democracy overseas were killed by their own government. Um, and also, um, Birth of a Nation, one of the most racist films ever made was screened at Woodrow Wilson's White House. So those are two examples that I think give a window into his mentality. So it's just wonderful that that school is now going to be known as Ida B. Wells um, High School and getting his name off. Um, yes. Michelle Duster, we are about at the end of our conversation. Uh, this has been terrific. I've loved meeting you, albeit via Zoom, and all of our folks watching have met you in this fashion. Um, <laughs> you're just doing a terrific service for everyone in doing the, the writing that you do. Um, so I have one final question for you, and that is this. What would your great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells Barnett, say to those of us young, old, and of all races as we celebrate Black History Month in 2021? Well, Doris, I think my great-grandmother would say to believe in yourself, to believe that we all deserve all that this country has to offer, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, to all of us, and um, to not be afraid to speak up for yourself. Our thanks to Michelle Duster, author of Ida B., The Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. And we encourage you all, buy the book. Purchase Michelle's new book at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Ladaris Cordell. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.